You're listening to Vexed, a program on the Ephesus School Network. I'm Andrea Backus, your curator through biblical literature and its world and culture. Just as a museum curator selects, acquires, cares for, repairs objects, and discovers frauds and counterfeits, I'll be sifting through our world and culture for examples to help us better understand the biblical text. In today's episode, we will turn our attention to the reasons that translators make errors. Translators make errors in their translations for complex reasons. There are challenges involved, things that make the practice of translating a text so difficult to do. As I've said before, I like lists as a way to break down and organize information, so I've developed a list of four reasons why translators make errors. And in today's episode, we will discuss the first two reasons, and in the next episode, discuss two more reasons. It goes without saying, that when I speak about translations, I'm referring to English translations of the Bible. So we begin with the why question. Why do translators make errors? Reason number one. The largest part of the Bible, the Old Testament, was written in a language that is conceptually different than English. English comes from the Indo-European family of languages. Greek and Latin are its common ancestors, and all three languages are Indo-European. But Biblical Hebrew comes from a different family of languages. It is a Semitic language. Biblical Hebrew, along with Arabic and ancient languages such as Akkadian and Ugaritic, are also from the Semitic family of languages. Jeff Benner, whom I've mentioned before, is a student and teacher of Biblical Hebrew, and his website is an excellent resource for Biblical Hebrew students. His website is ancient-hebrew.org. He does a nice job of explaining the difference between English and Biblical Hebrew. English describes things whereas Biblical Hebrew expresses the function of things. Mr. Benner gives the example of a pencil. An English description might be something like this. It is yellow, made of wood, and about seven inches long. A Biblical Hebrew description would point out, pardon the pun, its function. They might say something like, I write with it. Biblical Hebrew is action-oriented and as such, makes heavy use of verbs. Even its nouns are rooted in action. 
English nouns refer to a person, place, or thing, but biblical Hebrew nouns refer to the action of a person, place, or thing. The words knee, K-N-E-E, and gift, G-I-F-T, are nouns, and these words knee and gift are unrelated in English. But in biblical Hebrew, these nouns come from the same root word, barak, and they are related in action. Knee is berek, which literally means the part of the body that bends, and gift is beraka, which means what is brought on bended knee or with a bent knee. English words and expressions are abstract. What do I mean by abstract? Language that is abstract is mentally centered. Its words and expressions are conceptual. They exist in thought or idea, but they are not tangible. Words in English, such as love, justice, faith, truth, and peace, are abstract words. By contrast, biblical Hebrew words and expressions are concrete. That which can be perceived with our physical senses, that which can be seen, heard, touched, or tasted. Psalm 103 verse 8 is a rich and concise example of this difference. It reads, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Mercy, grace, and anger are abstract words in English. Moreover, they are flimsy translations. The words in Biblical Hebrew are quite different. Raham is the word for mercy. The three root letters, Resh, Het, Mem, mean womb, the womb of a woman, which protects and nurtures a growing baby. This is what mercy is from the Biblical Hebrew perspective, having to do with protection, care, and by the way, in the Bible, it's from the senior to the junior. It is the Lord who is merciful, not just anyone in the story. Hanun is the word for gracious. Its root means to bend or stoop in deference to an inferior. It's the act of the senior leaning down toward the junior. And it has another connotation. The root hana means to bend down in order to pitch a tent, as in to encamp, create shelter, an abode of protection against siege. As with mercy, this grace is the act of the senior to the junior. Af is the word for anger. Af means nose, nostrils, the physical structures we have on our face. It is the heavy breathing expelled from the nostrils that we can see when a person is enraged. This is a concrete word whose translation, anger, is abstract. Let us explore two more examples to help us understand how English is different from Biblical Hebrew. Consider the word soul, S-O-U-L, which is the most common translation of the Biblical Hebrew word nefesh. The word soul has no physicality. In order to speak about it, one has to speak philosophically. And of course, our word soul comes from Plato's work. He wrote about the immortal soul, 
the animating inner spirit of man. But nefesh means that which breathes, and thereby that which lives. Breathing is a concrete word, and in the Bible, it expresses life. It is a physical, tangible expression. It is neither a mental nor a spiritual one. Next, consider the word know, as in to know, K-N-O-W, to have knowledge of. This is the English translation of the biblical Hebrew word yada. You can find this in Strong's Concordance, H3045. Its root and proper meaning is to ascertain by seeing, to know something by seeing it with the eyes. It has nothing to do with the mind or with thinking. We find yada in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 10, and I offer this verse as an example of yada's root meaning, because even in English, the connection between seeing and knowing is clear. In this verse, we hear, But since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew, read yada, face to face. Reason number two for why translators make errors. Because we are not the original audience. The Bible was not written to us today. Because we are no longer the original audience, we do not share the same assumptions. The background culture, the setting, the context in which the biblical writer wrote is not the same as ours today. It's an information gap. We don't live and breathe the writer's setting, so it's a blind spot. We are at risk of reading ourselves into the text versus understanding what the writer is saying, since we only know our own setting, our own context. Carrie Fleiner is a scholar of Roman history and culture. She is senior lecturer in classical and medieval history at University of Winchester in the UK. Her latest book, entitled A Writer's Guide to Ancient Rome, is a fascinating survey of ancient Roman culture intended as a tool to be used by writers who wish to write historical fiction with ancient Rome as the setting. She writes about classical reception. This is a fairly new field of scholarship, which looks at how the ancient world is interpreted by the current audience which engages with it. In a May 19, 2020 video presentation about her book, she points out that our interpretation of the Roman world is ours. When we try to imitate or emulate the Roman world, we must recognize that we are seeing that world through ourselves, our culture, our mindset. She says, quote, The original audience for these sources that you're looking at to create your book are gone. So the original context is gone. So how we interpret these sources and how we relate to these monuments that are left behind comes with our own filters. It comes with our own baggage. Unquote. It is not only our own biases we must be aware of when reading an ancient text, but the writer has their own biases. In speaking about the Roman sources, she poses the question, quote, When they write about barbarians, are they telling us more about themselves 
than they are about these barbarians. Unquote. Now, coming back to the Bible, we are not the original audience. The biblical writer wrote with his own set of assumptions baked into his culture, which is then expressed in his language, in the building blocks he uses to craft his story. Language is inextricable from culture. The cultural and geographical context influences the writer's expressions. When we speak about culture, that includes the on-the-ground reality, the physical setting in which the writer is writing. And since we don't have access to that culture as modern hearers of the biblical text, we lack the understanding required to render a faithful translation of the text. We find an interesting example of how this cultural disconnect affects translations in the story of a recent translation of the Bible into Inuktitut, the language of the Inuit and Yupik peoples who reside in eastern Siberia and Alaska. In a May 2012 article in the National Catholic Reporter, writer Isabella Moyer announced that the Inuit people would now have access to the Bible in their own language. An Inuktitut translation of the complete Bible had recently been completed. The effort was led by Father Eugene Nida, and it was Father Nida who labored to achieve functional equivalence in his translation. He understood that language cannot be translated literally because the environment, the cultural setting behind the words in the biblical text, is foreign to the Inuit and Yupik people. Ms. Moyer writes, quote, The challenges of language with the Inuktitut Bible were many. How do you translate a desert reality into the beauty of the Arctic with its treeless expanse of snow and ice? Some words were translated phonetically, and gaps were filled with numerous footnotes and explanations. Shepherd was translated into the same word used for someone who tends a dog team. Unquote. Actually, the snowy, treeless expanse described here is a natural parallel with the desert wilderness described in the Bible. Both are desolate places where food is not readily available. No city, no agriculture. These settings function in the same way. Both describe places in which its sojourners would be forced to rely on God to feed them. And this is what we have in the biblical wilderness. On the other hand, had the Inuit landscape been a tropical paradise, laden with fruit trees, it would have been much harder to find a word or words to explain a desert wilderness. The point we are making is that it is not easy to translate the biblical text because our setting today is not the biblical writer's setting. Our culture is not their culture, and therefore translating across cultures, and more than that, across time and space, is a difficult task. Consider idioms in language. Idioms are sourced in culture, in that on-the-ground reality that we spoke about. How would a translator who is reading the text in its original language and trying to render that text into English 
recognize an idiomatic expression. What is an idiom? An idiom is an expression, word, or phrase that has a figurative meaning conventionally understood by native speakers. This meaning is different from the literal meaning of the idiom's individual elements. In other words, idioms don't mean exactly what the words say. They have a hidden meaning. We have many idioms in the English language. Spill the beans and kick the bucket are idiomatic expressions. Spill the beans means to tell or reveal secret information. And kick the bucket means to die. Someone who has kicked the bucket has died. Just as a thought experiment, imagine that kick the bucket was an idiomatic expression used in, say, the book of Genesis, written in biblical Hebrew. How would a translator perceive, pick up on the fact that kick the bucket is an idiomatic expression? And let's assume that our translator is an expert in biblical Hebrew and can read the text with ease. Our expert would easily be able to read the words kick the bucket in biblical Hebrew, but that doesn't mean that they would perceive this collection of words as an idiom. Jeff Benner again, in an article on his website in which he studies Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, muses about idioms. He writes, quote, I have often wondered how many phrases in the Bible have we interpreted literally when in fact they were originally an idiom with a meaning very different from how we have been translating it, unquote. Mr. Benner appreciates the difficulty. The original audience to whom the text was written and recited would have recognized an idiom and readily understood its meaning the way we do today. But we, the modern reader, will not pick up on these references since they are bound to the writer's time and culture, which at this point is thousands of years old. Because we do not know the cultural references, because their world is not our world, we impose our own understandings onto the text. A modern scholar would be more likely to check with other scholars on whether any buckets had been found on archaeological digs in Jerusalem, or whether stele or frescoes have been found depicting people or animals kicking buckets, than to ask themselves if perhaps these words might be the components of an idiomatic expression, a literary tool. That's all for today. In our next episode, we will continue our discussion with two more reasons why translators make errors. Until next time, this is Vexed. Vexed is a production of the Ephesus School Network.